dedicated to suspense and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love scary old-time radio stories. There's nothing quite like a disembodied voice telling a genuinely disturbing tale. But do these stories stand the test of time, or are we being deceived by nostalgia? Are they suspenseful or forgettable, bone-chilling or butt-numbing? That's what we're here to find out. In honor of our 50th episode, we decided to listen to one of our all-time favorite horror stories, The Thing on the Forble Board, from... Quiet, Please. Quiet, Please was created by radio and screenwriter Willis Cooper. Cooper gained notoriety in the mid-30s as the creator of the grisly radio show Lights Out, but eventually left the show to try his luck in Hollywood. After writing the screenplay for Son of Frankenstein and several installments in the Mr. Moto series, Cooper returned to radio as a writer for the Campbell's Playhouse. There he met radio announcer Ernest Chappell. Cooper was captivated by Chappell's everyman voice and natural demeanor and began to imagine a radio show that would utilize that voice to its fullest. Quiet Please debuted June 8, 1947 and ran for 105 episodes ending in 1949. Every episode was written by Willis Cooper with Ernest Chappell playing the lead. In contrast to the violent and visceral lights out, Quiet Please used a more understated approach, relying heavily on Chappell's gift as a storyteller to create a program that felt both intimate and surreal. Writing for Variety in 1948, radio critic John Crosby tried to categorize Cooper's stories. Quote, They have an odd flavor, extremely difficult to describe, and they represent, I should say, pure radio. That's the sort of stories they are, just weird. And if you're of literal mind, I suggest you avoid them. End quote. One Quiet Please listener shared her unique way of preparing for the program in the form of a poem, published in the October 1948 issue of Radio Mirror. It's entitled, Shh. She looks beneath her bed before retiring, draws all the shades and closes tight the house, makes sure the shotgun is cocked for firing, and sets a trap for some intruding mouse. Then, turning out all of the lights and snuffing candles, her breath held in as if about to sneeze, she walks to a dark room on padded sandals and listens to the program, Quiet, Please. Listeners, we don't advocate cocking your shotgun, but we do suggest you turn out your lights now. It's time for The Thing on the Forble Board from Quiet, Please. Originally broadcast August 9th, 1948. Forget the petty distractions around you. Forget what you think you know. Forget everything but what you hear right now. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music. And listen to the voices. Quiet, please. The 
Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Thing on the Furball Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago. A little too old, too slow now. Besides, I got a dollar now. I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. Married, got a nice home. Have to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike! I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she doesn't hear very well. Shame, too. She's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. A roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a guy in a drilling crew. Call them roughnecks like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer, a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're going to be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. A derrick floor or a forble board's no place for a guy with a bow tie. Because... Yeah, when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level. Yeah, sure they do. From the time I was a roughneck, we got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Trona Valley in Wyoming at 14,309 feet. That, friend, is almost three miles. Quite a hole, that, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there besides rock and oil and gas. Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men, maybe, that beat each other to death with a stone axe, ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Yeah, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes the little shells... Trilobites, mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunwald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. We were down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing. We began to get water, so we had to stop drilling and cement it off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe... Then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with quick-hardening waterproof cement. Then when it's hard, you drill through the cement and go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and cracked. The cement was setting, see? So we was shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. You see, a, a core drill is hollow. And as the bit digs down, it stuffs the drillings up inside it, so when you pull it out, you got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's going into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the porch for myself, but I heard a car pulling up. Look out, it's Billy Grunwald, the geologist, and I give him a hello. Hi, Billy, come and have a pork chop. Hi, Porky. Ah. Where's everybody? Yeah, all went to town. I'm the whole crew. You know, I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. Yeah, I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd been here about three. Yeah, I would have been, except for my tough luck. Oh, oh I'm dead. Yeah, hungry? Starved. Yeah, I got six, no, oh, seven pork chops. And bread. And some coffee, kind of. Swell. 
Yeah, I got a bottle in the car. <laughs> We're going to have a banquet. Hey, where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at. Yeah, back there on the bench. Look at it after supper. Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? Uh huh. I thought I heard somebody talking. Mm-hmm. I don't see anybody. If we keep an eye on that pork chop. You won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Yeah, let me put the coffee on. Like so. When'd you finish cementing? This morning. Last tower only made about ten feet of holes, so Ted shut down before we get flooded out of house and home. Funny about that water. Mm, how? Oughtn't to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure, right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. Well, last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale. Mm, ain't seen none yet from the cuttings. That's funny. Here, your pork chop's done. Yeah, take some bread. Yeah, thanks. Oh, man. Good, huh? <laughs> yeah, put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, much obliged. Yeah, you know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the straighter. And all you know is what comes out of the hole. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go down there sometime if I was little enough. <laughs> never get you down a hole. Yeah, you'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? Behind you. Over there. Hmm? Oh. Well, I'll have a look at it. Well, why don't you wait you finish your supper? I'm just going to look at it. Uh, put on another pork chop for me. Okay. Well, I wish I was screech out of What's the matter? Hey, wait a minute, Porky. Well, why do you... Listen. What's eating you? you? You know, I'd have sworn there's somebody up there in that portable board. Ah, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. You're going to get those stands of drill pipes. Ah, they're just rack crooked. One of them slipped. Come on back and eat your pork chop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I... Ah, what's just so jittery about Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm just naturally that way, I guess. I'm always scared of the dark. I'm scared. Doc Gunner, I, I hate to be a baby, but I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest? Stupid, ain't it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me? Spiders scare the tar out of me. Black widows. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over here? Yeah. yeah. Here. Ah. Oh, that's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky. Go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket and bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. Okay, kid. Okay. So I picked up a flashlight. I turned around and went outside. I found the car. And I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up. And when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the forble board, <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> Billy Grunewald and his ideas. Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there, except the drill pipe racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this, uh, forble board. Well, you've seen oil derricks or pictures of them. Do you know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the forble board. 
Well, you see, drill pipe comes in lengths, and you handle them with several lengths screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. Two lengths is a double, three is a thribble, four is a fourble. When you pull the pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick of the traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. Then when a fourble of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, like a great big stilts and wrench, you see. Snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cat head on the draw works, and that breaks the joint. Then you hold the tongs on the pipe, give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it. You heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. The guy up on the fogel board takes off the traveling block. You do it all over again till you got all the pipe out, you see? Well, there wasn't anybody up on the fogel board uh, except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off, and I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell. Yay! What's the matter? What's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? Look, Porky. My... Where did you find that? Now, listen, Porky, I give you my word. That was embedded in the core. Why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. You know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. And look at this. And I did look. And what he was holding was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed, just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. Now, 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 wait a minute. Hang on, I ain't done. I poked at the core of rock that looked like a uh, kind of petrified salami or something. And then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants. Because right alongside the place where Billy dug out the ring, there was a mud-covered but very unmistakable finger. I picked it up. And it was cold. And it was heavy. And it was solid rock. At least it felt like solid rock. And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger. And as he rubbed it, it began to disappear. No, he could, he could still feel it, he said, but when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk, and we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we've done? When we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me, we finished it in one slug of piece and it was a full pint of bathtub gin. It tasted just like so much well water to me. And then we sat down on the derrick floor and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming up from... Down in a fogel board 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. And I had awful dreams. Black widow spiders crawling all over me with gold rings on their legs. 
Things I could hear but I couldn't see up on the forbo board. Millie Grunewald climbing up the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. The faces looking at me and I couldn't figure out who they were. And then I was waked up by a horrible scream. The crash inside me that shook the whole derrick. I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunewald lying on the floor two feet away with a broken neck. With a broken neck and his left hand. Well, he put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. Well, friend, I got out of there. I ran down to where Billy had left his car and I got in. I stepped on the starter. And I couldn't get it to go. And then I remembered after I pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken a key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car and shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop and everybody in the world was asking me questions. Did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pipe, Ted. Well, what was he doing up on the floorboard board? Did you threaten him and did he run up there to get away from Listen, you? Listen, cop, don't be a chump. Billy Grunewald and I were good friends. Then why'd you push him off the floorboard board? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I don't know. I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides... How would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer. I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky, and personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, so. that's mighty mysterious. Well, so it is. But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there, and I want to start drilling again, and I'm short-handed. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in my pipe again, and... Well, then you can take him and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, okay. I... Let's get rolling. You got steam up, Happy? I'm all set. All right. Porky, you go from the formal board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there to shove you overboard. You can put a safety line around you if you want to. And besides, you're getting paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Come on, get going. So, okay, I go up on the forbo board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. Now I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. Came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first forbola drill pipe. Gave a big jerk, and the cable broke. It dropped and nearly pulled me off the forbo board. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, yeah, you keep your ideas to yourself. Well, that was enough. Two accidents in a row. The whole crew quit. They, they wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more. And as far as I know, the abandoned... Derek is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. 
It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable. And I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers. You know what? There was something up there on the formal board with me. And so a couple of days later, I came back. I, I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate, as dismal, as dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands like a skeleton off on a deserted side road in the bare yellow hills surrounding it, and it's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we'd left it. I, I looked into the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. Then I heard a tinkle of something as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around. There wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was the gold ring that Billy Grunewald and I had found in the core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. And I heard a little sound. The sound of a kid crying. And there wasn't any kid up there. And I heard it again, and it came from above my head, and, and I... And I took out my revolver. I loaded it carefully. I started up the ladder to the forble board. No, there wasn't anything up there, nothing I could see. But there was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. And then there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are! Come out, or I'll start shooting! And the stand of pipe shivered, and I thought, What can it be that can handle that heavy pipe like... like Jack Straw's? And then there was a crash. The whole stand of pipe fell over, and I just got out of the way in time. And I was alone on the forbo board with the thing. And I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or three shots. And nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it meowing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. And there it was. And I wish I... I wish... The face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror. Hands like a human being and a finger missing from the left hand. And a body... I'll not tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well, come to an alien world, and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone, living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes, 
and mewed like a lost kitten. Twenty years ago, I discovered many things about it, what it used for food, that it was deaf, that it was invisible and couldn't see people when it was invisible, that if you sprayed it with mud or paint or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face. I can't help wanting to see that pathetic little girl face. I'm afraid maybe I've fallen. But it's very beautiful. And when it's well made up, it's... But making it up, rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well. And when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike. Mike. There she is. Come on in, dear. Tonight's Quiet Please story is The Thing on the Furble Board. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper and featured Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Billy Grunewald. Pat O'Malley was Ted. And Cecil Roy was also a member of the cast. As usual, music for Quiet Please is played by Albert Berman. Sound? Sound by our good friend Albert April. Now, for the word about next week, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Well, I'm reasonably sure that all the characters in tonight's stories were completely fictional. At least I, for one, hope so. Next week, the story is called Presto Changeo, I'm sure. And so, until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. This program was heard in Canada through the facilities of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. That was The Thing on the Forble Board from Quiet, Please, here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. Oh, finally, we get to do <laughs> The Thing on the Forble Board. That's the fourth or fifth time I've listened to it. Yeah. And I had the same reaction every time, and it's... What? <laughs> In a great way. That extra added layer layer that isn't necessary and you don't see coming, and who would think of it to have him marry it <laughs> is, is the, the coup de grace, right? The, wow, you married it. What? <laughs> and it is so unexpected. It's so unexpected. And it's interesting, so much of what is scary about this episode happens in the last two minutes, 
and you're more frightened after this episode than you were during the entire episode. Yeah. And you feel but, like yeah. you were abused or attacked or something. It's, it's like, a punch in the head. Yeah. It gives you the setup of, I'm narrating to you directly. We're having a conversation. Mm-hmm. All the context you need to know so you don't feel cheated in the end. Mm-hmm. But it also, tone-wise... You don't feel threatened in the moment of hearing the story from this narrator no, until the end. Yeah, because he seems so easygoing. He seems knowledgeable. He sure knows a lot right. about working on an oil rig, and he shares it yep. all with you. Well, <laughs> that's just it. Then there's this other layer to it. All those things you just said about him, the trust that is built with the character mm-hmm. and the listener, that there becomes a moment where you say, and God help me, Oh, he married her. Good. That's nice. Like, you know, like you're happy for him or something. So you're like the dad with a shotgun going, you did the right thing, boy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? Like, yeah. he seems so happy. They're like, oh, good for him. But He's then a nice he, man. There's a whole nother layer of, like, his strange attraction, the little girl face that well, he yeah. emphasizes a Could lot in Covers there. up her spider body with... Yeah. yeah. yeah just, Only... Putting makeup or mud on the face so he didn't have to see the rest of her body. Yeah. And yet you have a moment of, oh, well, he sounds happy. <laughs> Come on out of here, Mike. Yeah. Which is never explained, by the way. What? Normally I'd be mad about that. Like, well, why is she named Mike? I think it is in 1948 to just add to the weirdness. It's more sexual ambiguity to layer on top of the spider body and the little girl face, and then he uses a male-gendered nickname for her, and it just makes this whole, like, what is going on? Who are you? I had, At the very top, it seems so disarming to me. of Like, oh, oh. the funny nickname for the wife of, that makes her seem like a person rather than mm-hmm. just offstage wife. True. Right. It works, it works both ways. And so much of this episode has double meanings, and, and the structure allows for that, where one thing that seems homey and nice at one part suddenly becomes frightening the other or the, the meaning changes like the ring they find the yeah. ring and that immediately suggests oh it's not just creatures down there that suggests that maybe there's a culture there's a yeah. civilization way down there or there was because uh, that ring isn't something that a a, a shotgun yeah. No, it's not helpful. <laughs> it's not, not H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> it's all H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, well, because in H.P. Lovecraft, you would see this thing and go right. mad instantly, yes. not fall in love. <laughs> the anti-Lovecraft. Uh, so that, that has that scary moment, but it works to foreshadow this marriage that you didn't see coming, but the, it's all around this ring, and who has the ring, and suddenly he's married. Just thematically, that's a nice connection of mm-hmm. all the artifacts to choose to discover as a writer. Right. And the, it the does ring is really thematically nice. Suggest because you don't really know this Mike, this person, what this thing is, what it thinks, but it has a ring, mm-hmm. which suggests more than just the thing that crawls around in in the dirt. It's, yeah, it comes from a civilization that can build things and or once did long ago. And right. Then, yeah. Is this and something like the Morlocks or something like? Not that? a functional machine. It's a, a bit of jewelry, a, a, an adornment. We should have the listeners draw what they think this thing looks like, <laughs> and then the winner gets to gonna... marry it. <laughs> no, but yeah, and then we should make Mike dolls and sell them on a website. Somewhere in there is a good idea. Baby-faced spider things. Aww. All right, Aww. listeners, send us your your drawings. <laughs> Uh, this, this can't go terribly wrong. There's no <laughs> way that this could go bad. Uh, 
I want to segue into I, I have listened to this episode several times. And each time when he goes through the explanation of what the Forble Board is and how it works. Thank you. It really grounds me. And I really try to follow what he's saying. <laughs> and I feel like I get a little bit better each time the crown block comes. To, no, I'm gone. I lost it. I don't know what's <laughs> it happening. It is hard. But I will. I have that same note about the explanation. What I love about this episode. Yes, I can get a little lost. They're doing their best to explain something that's pretty complicated. First level, second level, third and the fourth level, level and all that. And I can picture it. And it doesn't really matter. There's a platform up there. And, and, and we're fine with it. I really love that they take the time and explain how this system works to us Mm -hmm. and in a way that i really love like oh okay hold on you don't know how this works so in oil drilling and we do this and this and i love and and again when i listen i'm really amazed because it's a really odd concept there's like 300 people in the world that know what this is so to Mm -hmm. use this as your setting is risky yeah, it, it it runs contrary to what the usual horror trope is, is you put something scary and something familiar. Correct. It should be like the thing on the dining room table. That's what should scare us, right? You know, we, other, than, we, <laughs> other than everything that you drop when you walk into the house. <laughs> it's the cat. The cat is the thing on the dining room table. But, but you know what I mean? Like yes. That shouldn't be scary because you're like, how did a thing get on the forble board? What's a forble board? Yeah. <laughs> I just love how, yeah. the, and they, in layman's terms, and even though it's in layman's terms, Tim, I'm with you, there comes a point where I go, oh, I don't care <laughs> well it's a testament to chapel and cooper who can make that what would be a dry technical piece of mm-hmm. dialogue make you love this character like yep it does that as well as grounds this story gives it the sense of reality the sense of authenticity mm-hmm. and so you buy in and then as the more fantastical elements emerge literally and figuratively, it's, it's scarier because it feels like they're coming into a real world, into your world. It's kind of like the actual drill. He starts in the recognizable surface. The story <laughs> does. This is real. Mm-hmm. This is what we all know. And it gets deeper and it gets weirder and mm-hmm, stranger mm-hmm. and more and more dark and foreign as you go. And ultimately, the uh, drill itself becomes its own sort of character, describing it as the loneliest place on Earth. That... Oh, yeah. It's this desolate location by the end when he returns to it because it's been abandoned and it's dead. Yeah. And he, he seems disconnected to it he's that's the other thing he's in he's in love with it he's describing it in great detail and then by the time he comes back it's a something out of a cemetery the creative imagination it took to come up with this a thing that is invisible to our eyes uh uh, that lives in the rock well you know i'm being vague because he is because Mm -hmm. they we never find out exactly what's going on and we all have enough information to form what we think this is in our heads, which I love, because if we were somehow to articulate what it is that we're thinking this thing looks like or where it came from or what this is, all three of ours and all of our listeners would be different, which I love that we're all participating in this process and it's becoming our own, but we are not upset that we're not getting all the details. It's Mm -hmm. enough to scare us. It's enough to keep us invested. And it's just amazingly... Creative, yeah. You never feel lost except no. for the portable board descri- the description. Yeah, but yeah. With the actual creature, yeah. How this thing looks is yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's not enough description for it to be universal. And how it moves, and how it lives in the rock below, and where it came from, and and what is this invisibility? 
is it chameleon-like or is it actual invisible? That's yours, and that's the way radio should be. That's what's beautiful about this art form, and what I love about it so much is that we participate in the process, and what is in our heads it belongs only to us. Yeah. And, and this is a great example of that. That's why uh, the critic Crosby that we quoted at the top of the show, he called it pure radio. And that's right. that's what you're yeah. getting at. This is just it. It's mm-hmm. all in the imagination in your head. But, boy, he guides you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when he lets go of your hand, it's scary. <laughs> uh, there's a, an interesting thing with Foley, with the sound effects. The choices when to use them and when not to use them. And normally, if it wasn't such a what I think an amazing piece of writing and an amazing piece of radio, I would hold them up to a standard for this that I would say inconsistent and I have issue. But I think it's intentional on when they decide. For example, I heard the ring drop. We don't hear the ring drop. The 10-ton pipe hitting Ben. No Mm -hmm. scream, no thump, no nothing. Well, well, he uses music for those. I went back back and listened to this and tried to find the structure. And I think I might have found it except for the end, which it falls apart, but then I think it might be intentional, is throughout the first 19, 20 minutes, when we're in a scene, and it's not summary and there's not narration, he uses actual sound effects. He uses the sound of pipes falling, a clank. Mm-hmm. He sizzles of pork chops because you're in a scene and he's not narrating it. Every time mm-hmm. he's recounting what happened through narration, the organ does the sound effects. Mm-hmm. Until we get to his final confrontation with the thing on the forable board and then it's this mix-up of both. We hear gunshots, but right. then the organ does the paint flying at the yep. monster, and it becomes this sort of jumble as he's doing these physical things, but he's also narrating it. And with mm-hmm. someone like Cooper, that couldn't have been sloppy. No, you know, it's w- not. Whether That's it works for you or not might be a different question, but yeah, I'm agreeing with you. There ha- I, I, It has it's to be intentional. Because otherwise, why would you go, uh, we need a ring drop here? Nah, it's not Ed Wood. And you're right, it's the music that substitutes for certain things i think that there's something that we don't need and it goes back to us owning part of this process when we're told a big giant pipe falls on ben do we really need to hear it we can create that in our head and i think foley is used for the things that you need help with Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah what i'm trying to say well and in that the big cable that fell on that guy they make a point in the writing to studiously avoid describing it like you don't want this described to you this was horrible if you've ever seen it then you know and if you haven't you don't want to know how about the voice of the thing yeah cecil roy i did some research you know that uh, she is from saint paul minnesota wow yep and known as the uh woman of a thousand voices she is like the real life cherry from (laughs) our mystery mystery, (laughs) so you found out this woman is in this show just to make that noise Yep. <laughs> Good on you. Because so that was one, money well spent. Yep. Solid oh, research. Oh wow! It's yeah, amazing because it, it sounds like a baby crying, and I read that she was known for her baby crying. Right back to <laughs> I Love a Mystery, and right. and so they got her, and it sounds like a a kid crying, but not. When it's so plaintive, it's not just a crying noise. It's the sort of demand for attention. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's terrifying. The word forble board <laughs> is says scary. It's a forble board. I don't know why, but there's something about the phrase that's weird in itself, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just disorienting. It's like like someone said the word forble board, and the guy went, what's that? That's a weird word. Well, I'm putting that in a show because that's so (laughs) weird. Tell me more about this forble board. 
Well, Willis Cooper did work on the. Don't oil ruin field, it for me. So he, he, <laughs> All he right. had some knowledge of this firsthand. I'm maybe digging really deep. No pun intended. But there is with with the forable board. There is almost this four part structure that I don't think I'm mm. grasping too much. No, there for. Yeah. that first segment that is the technical background and the character building that he's talking, telling the story, and then we get into a nighttime solid scene where Billy that's part two where Billy shows up and he's cooking pork chops mm-hmm. and I love that we kind of begin with cooking pork chops and this homey thing and we end with feeding the listener yes. <laughs> to Mike uh, that's another nice structure and an interesting thing about that is a Foley choice again we don't hear the pork chops sizzling I swear I heard it did you? back to your point I swear I, I could smell it right. <laughs> this show makes me want to eat some pork chops <laughs> <laughs> to me it was you know let me cook one up for you and there was no noise there you go, room temp. <laughs> Eat away. Anyway, third. The third, we go to daytime after Billy dies, and then everything seems less creepy in the day. Then the police show up, and it all seems almost procedural, right? And, and right. they accuse him, hey, well, you're just a bunch of drunk roughnecks here, and someone died, and then someone dies again. Ted, Ted. the guy who runs the, oh, well, the was, actual dig. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, And then the real end when he goes back and the tone changes. It's two days later. Like you said, the oil rig is now an ominous shadow in the sky. And I just, I like that structure stuff. There's just so much of that in here. And, you know, it might be reading a lot into it, but I think it's because the story is so good. It supports so many readings. Mm -hmm. Right. There gets a point in literature or uh, book clubs or uh, table work (laughs) in theater (laughs) where we can overanalyze and the writer never meant any of that. And because we love it so much, you never know how much was Mm -hmm. intended. I think that if something is really well written, it lends itself to that kind of discussion. And ideally you have something like this that works so well on the surface. You can just turn this on late at night and just be scared to death and not think about it again other than just the sort of primal fear it activates in you. But then you can go back if you're of that mind and really dig in and analyze it, and it works in both ways. I'll never forget the first time I heard it. Yeah. He married it? (laughs) It could not have made me more unsettled. Tim, did you hear tons about it before you heard it? I heard it mentioned before I actually heard the episode okay. as, some, as people saying, oh, that's very good. Okay, um, so it wasn't oversold. No, you? no. But there will be people that have discovered old-time radio through our podcast and we're introducing them to it. Those are the people who want to hear because I think everybody that's an OTR fan has heard of this show. Somebody that doesn't know much, I'd like to hear them if, wow, that was really amazing or... That's stupid. He married it. <laughs> well, that, uh, in the way I think of these structures, it's very effective in that same way. Sort of parentheses of narrator telling you a story, and he tells you a story about a monster. This horrible thing with monster happens, and then you get to the close parenthesis of that, and the monster is there. I know this is kind of abstract, but it means the monster is climbing up the narrative hierarchy mm-hmm. towards the actual listener. Yeah. There's one more yeah. level, and it's actually yeah. in my lap. Yep. Right. <laughs> Eating my face. Yes. That's a really, really interesting thing. Uh, yeah, you're right. We very rarely get introduced by a narrator to the actual monster. The, or... the other level I love of this is that Cooper is so confident and believes so much in the power of storytelling that he can just capture you that he literalizes this. He's literally holding the listener captive. Mm-hmm. You find yeah. out, I've got a gun. I didn't need it up till now because my story was that good. <laughs> but if you move, I will shoot you. And Mike doesn't care. She'll still eat you. <laughs> is that the deal? Mike eats people? He That's... says very subtly, he's like, I found out what they like to eat. 
and he passes it by for a while, and then he comes back to it. He goes, you do remember I said I found out what she That's likes right. to eat. And he says, you know, I want you to meet my wife, but actually my wife wants to meet you. Right. So on top because of, the- of your lasagna recipe, my wife is fascinated <laughs> to talk to you. Well, well, that throws a hole in something for me. Then why push the guy off and not just eat him? Didn't Mike push the first guy off the formal board? I may have just fallen because he was pretty drunk. All right. We know he's had 20 years to figure this out. And you notice that he said it's what Mike likes to eat. Right. Because obviously these things did not come up and hunt humans before. They had to drill miles and yeah. miles below the Earth's surface. So I thought that was a really interesting choice of words that this might be something they discovered in the 20 years. Right. Mike developed a taste for people. And that's when Mike just first came up. Right. Like the first homo sapien to run yeah. into a cow. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Is that the noise you yes. make when you eat? That, that is a homo sapien encountering oh, a cow. Oh, I thought it was just a bad cow impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cows don't, don't go. Like rawr, rawr, rawr. <laughs> My speaking spell didn't work very well. <laughs> the cow goes. Um, slightly related to that, but they did, I do want to point out the main character is called Porky. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you think he got the name Porky? Is it because he likes pork chops? Yeah, yeah, because he makes pork chops. All that's what I just figured. Well, the, no, he's fat. You think he's fat? He's, I thought it was it's, a pork It's explicit chop in there that he's fat. It is? Um, because he says, like, oh, I, I'd like to go down there sometime. And Billy says, oh, you'd never fit down there. And he goes, well, oh. you would. You're skinny to Billy. And so okay. I think it's double air because he, he eats a freaking lot of pork chops. <laughs> that was a lot of pork chops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, what, he's like, you want another one? I got to eat more. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of room temperature cooked pork chops. <laughs> Put them on the counter. was not showing up at the oil. <laughs> Any other last thoughts before we go to the vote? Uh, Things you want to get off your so chest? So much. It took me several listens to realize that he's specifically frightened of black widows. And then he yeah. ends up marrying the half spider yep. woman, which I think is wonderful. There's another great unfinished sentence that happens at the end uh, when he is describing her pretty childlike face. And he says like, something about, like, I think I've fallen, or he's, he doesn't finish the sentence about falling. And it's this implication as he's saying, in love. He's certainly fallen morally. Has he fallen <laughs> physically? Yeah. yeah. So that ellipsis has a lot of power in there. Yeah. And my final thing that's interesting, he says at the very beginning, he's too old to work as a roughneck anymore, and he doesn't need it anymore. He's got money. And it just made me really intrigued. Like, where did you go to make money to keep Mike in style (laughs) in long dresses and grease paint? It's just just a fun detail that made me, because I've heard it so many times, and every time I go back and listen to it, I find something. Killing people, taking their money. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I had one other uh, note that popped up of the historical context where the police come out to arrest somebody and the owner of the oil derrick says, nah, <laughs> we need this guy to work. Let him be. I'm like, all right. Yeah. All right. Different times. Different, Different times. times. None of them had helmets on. Do we arrest him or is he working today? <laughs> Final, I think we all know what we're going to say. Tim? Yeah. I would say this is a classic. Yeah. Classic. I would say it might be one of the great, it, it might not be, just a horror, but one of the greatest radio productions correct. ever. It's arguably the best. So what we're saying is it's all downhill from here, listeners. So that's we, right. We peaked, and that's it. At 50. <laughs> from here on out, we're just going to do terrible ones. Um, <laughs> I will say that I wish that there was a sequel, because I would really like to see their life together. <laughs> like, a, like a, you know... 
grocery shopping yeah. and it's, going a, to it's the new Pixar film they're doing. It's yeah. Porky and Mike. It's going to be adorable. <laughs> Wouldn't it's about the road trip. <laughs> the road trip that they took, the kids. It's about learning to accept differences in people. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Happy 50th, everybody. Happy 50th. Yay. And I, thank you to my two lovely co-hosts. This has been fantastic. I'm looking forward to five to ten more episodes. <laughs> That's about what I got, Amy. Right. If you want to learn more uh, before we uh, wrap up this whole thing, <laughs> please go to ghoulishdelights.com. There you can find other episodes of this podcast. You can find information about our live shows because we go out into the world. In fact, we'll be going out to the James J. Hill Center in September and October to perform live versions of old-time radio scripts, and it's fun. You can also go to iTunes and write a review of this podcast. It really helps us out. We love to hear from you. Um, help us celebrate our 50th by telling us how much you like this podcast. Give us horrible stars. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Yeah, so- we'll edit that out. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, our next one is our 51st episode. This yes. one is Joshua's Pick. Yes. And it's somewhat related to this show. Yes. This is something that has often been compared to the thing on the horrible board, so I thought it'd be a good time uh, to discuss it. So while a thing on the board is still fresh in our minds and it is an episode of the mysterious traveler called Behind the Locked Door. Until then... Look out! Come on in, dear.